Support for the following podcast comes from Hope Made Strong's training, Trauma-Informed Care for the Faith Community. This training is for church leaders that introduces how to build a safe, healthy, and trauma-informed church community. For just $5, join the training, download the toolkit, and have access to the resource library, offering dozens of books, online resources, and media links. The live training is in February 2022, but the replay and resources will remain accessible. Go to hopemadestrong.org slash trauma-informed for more information. Right, so David has this childhood trauma of uh, abandonment and estrangement from people. So when David gets older, what does he struggle with? He struggles with intimacy. In childhood, the one thing that he lacked was intimacy. And so when he gets power and he gets authority, what's the one thing he can't say no to? Intimacy, to the point of murdering somebody, right? And that is how, that is like a small snippet. I didn't go on about this for years, but that is like a small snippet of how even in Christ, even in our fruitfulness, even in our ministry, even in our ability to slay, you know, the tens of thousands when other people are only slaying the thousands, our childhood trauma does not get resolved by time, does not get resolved by success, does not get resolved by the change of location. There was still a reality that David, in his heart, I believe that when he lets um, himself lead someone to their death, that was not a grown man doing that. That was a little kid saying, I'll never be lonely again, saying, I'll never be left out again. From Hope Made Strong, this is the Care Ministry Podcast, a show about equipping ministry leaders and transforming communities through care. Supporting those in your church community not only changes individuals' lives, but it grows and strengthens the church. But we want to do that without burning out, so listen in as we learn about tools, strategies, and resources that will equip your team and strengthen hope. I'm Laura Howe, and welcome to the Care Ministry Podcast. On the show today is Kobe Campbell, CEO and lead therapist at The Healing Circle. And we're going to be talking all about how trauma-informed leadership can transform the church. When we show up to lead and serve, it's hard to imagine that we're bringing along the experiences and lessons that we learned as a child. You are leading a team and caring for people using the lessons and strategies that you developed in your formative years. Now, these aren't the only skills we bring to our care and leadership, but don't underestimate the impact that our earliest experiences have given us. Even the lessons learned from birth to three years of age are critical. If you have nurturing family relationships, you learn that adults will protect you and you develop coping strategies to regulate your stress response. In safe environments, you learn to build social connections and take risks and develop independence and self-confidence. With something as simple as access to food and modeling of healthy eating habits, you develop a healthy connection to food as something to nourish you rather than to reward or punish you, and you don't fear scarcity or not having enough. 
Children in primary grades continue to learn and adapt. Their experiences going to school, living in their community and home dramatically impact their view of the world as a safe place, how they see themselves, trust in relationships with peer and authority figures, and how they cope with stress. For most of us, we didn't grow up in an idyllic home or neighborhood. Most of us experienced a variety of issues ranging from poverty, divorce, maybe you moved around a lot and had unstable housing, or you experienced bullying, racism, food scarcity, or unavailable parents who are just trying to survive. This doesn't mean that we have grown into unstable adults. Well, although I do wonder at times, but through self-reflection, having mentors, uh, therapy, or the school of hard knocks, we recognize the stuff inside of us that is unhealthy and we grow or change. But as leaders, it is helpful to be aware that our self-confidence, how we relate to our peers and authority was developed as a child. Kobe Campbell, CEO of The Healing Circle, specializes in trauma therapy. She is passionate about helping people heal from trauma as they discover how God is part of the healing process. But she also works with ministry leaders to see how their trauma experiences impact how they lead. She offers experiential training for organizational leaders to effectively connect with their team in a way that promotes mental wellness as a core tenant of their company culture. Kobe was born in Vancouver, Canada, in a community where her West African heritage was just part of a very diverse and multi-ethnic community, a community where people were not described by their color or tradition. At the age of eight, her family moved to Greensboro, North Carolina to follow her father's career opportunities, and they were welcomed with a letter on their doorstep from the KKK. Kobe's family were among the first non-white families to move into their neighborhood, and it was a culture shock. It was here that for the first time, Kobe was treated differently because not only did she have dark skin, but she was also African. As a result, eight-year-old Kobe developed what she now identifies to be anxiety, and it was the beginning of her journey with mental health. I remember going to school and experiencing anxiety. Well, what I know now as an adult is anxiety, but I would sweat through my clothes. As like a second and third grader, I would sweat through my clothes. So I started to wear all black and wear lots of like hoodies and jackets to cover it up. I used to tell my parents all the time I was sick or my stomach hurt, I didn't feel good. And those feelings were true in my body. But now that I look back and I'm like, I I was anxious. I was anxious. Um, I was bullied a lot from um, my white classmates for being, having dark skin. And then from my black classmates for having dark skin and then also being a different kind of black because we're African. And so, I think that was like the beginning of, of like my mental health struggles growing up. Mm -hmm. Wow. And you stayed in that community throughout childhood or did you move around? Uh, We stayed in that community. My parents still live in that same house. Wow. Right now. We still live there. Yep. They, that cross country move was enough for them. So (laughs) one and done. (laughs) Yeah. They were like, and we're staying here forever. (laughs) And so, um, yeah, I grew up there, grew up in that community and, and found some really good, beautiful, amazing lifelong friendships that I have to this day. 
Um, but I think growing up in that context, it was honestly like a breeding ground for a lot of insecurity, a lot of self-esteem issues, a lot of what's wrong with me, mm-hmm. um, a lot of bullying. Um, Did you think there was something yeah. wrong with you? Like you say that as a child, can you think or was it just all a blur that you um, you weren't able to, like you say, you didn't have the words to describe it as anxiety, but did you, how did you describe it? Or did you think that was normal? I definitely knew it wasn't normal. So I have a twin sister and my twin sister is amazing. My best friend in the entire world. And um, she has fairer skin than me. And I noticed that she got treated differently than I did. Um, And she noticed too, right? Um, And so it wasn't just uh, something that I took note of. It's something that she took note of too. And we would discuss people were always much nicer to her, much kinder to her. And and in many ways at a young age, I got to experience the nuances of racism and colorism, if that makes sense. People would make jokes of, about us having different dads, even though you know we have the same parents. And they was like, oh, well, she's so light. You guys must have different dads or make jokes about, well, maybe you stayed in the oven too long or things like that. Um, and I, I did have this sense of much of my childhood was really joyful and really fun, but I think there was this undercurrent of feeling like I didn't belong, feeling like, why am I always getting bullied wherever I go? It felt like, no, like, I remember being in elementary school and being excited for middle school and being like, everything's going to change. I'm going to leave all these people and I can start over and I'm not going to get bullied again. And then I went to middle school and it happened again and then high school and, and then it, I think it really stopped around college, but you know, to be honest, I think by the time I got to high school, I kind of found my identity in trying to like be loved or or liked by anyone. You know, I found myself um, really wanting attention from guys. I found myself really wanting to like figure out how I could be friends with like the quote unquote cool kids, and and I found myself in that that cycle of um feeling like life was like this back and forth of of wanting to be loved by people but feeling like I just couldn't be like there's something just wrong with me and a lot of that came to a crest um, and this is a trigger warning but a lot of that came to a crest my sophomore year of college where um I actually attempted to commit suicide and that was actually how I became a Christian it was a pretty crazy miraculous story um, I come back from a party and I had some pills and some alcohol and my brother-in-law um, was like the weird Christian kid who always was like, you want to come to Bible study? Like you want to, and I was like, leave me alone. No, I'm going to <laughs> um, but one day, you know, I go to my room and, and take those substances and he texts me and he says, um, Hey, I was praying and the Lord told me that you took some pills and that you drank some alcohol and that you wrote a note to, you know, your sister and your roommates and he told me to tell you to rip it up. And he told me to tell you that you're going to live and you're not going to die. And then he has a purpose for your life. Oh, and that's yeah, intense. So it, if that doesn't, doesn't shake you up, <laughs> I don't know what does. <laughs> yeah, wow. it, it still makes me, it still makes me cry. That was the first time in a million years. That was the first time. I felt like, oh, there's a God and he's not just up there, but he like sees me, you know, and, 
and maybe there's not something wrong with me, you know? Um, so after a long night of him trying to, you know, get through my, my thick skull, the next morning he invited me to church and I reluctantly said yes and, and gave my life to Christ that next morning. And everything was amazing for like two weeks. And then I was, I was like depressed again. And I was, and it felt like nobody in the church could help me. It felt like, like, I just remember the shame of being told like, well, is there a sin you haven't repented of? Or, you know, is there something in your heart you're keeping from the Lord? Or is there someone you need to apologize to? Or you're, you're giving the enemy a stronghold, or, you know, like you're giving him a foothold in your life. Or maybe there's a stronghold we need to pray off. And like feeling like, you guys really in my heart, I, I truly have given everything to God. I truly believe that I'm saved by his grace. I truly believe that like, like I'm loved by him. I truly believe all the things I've done all the things I've said all the things I still feel this weight of depression. And so <laughs> without really anyone knowing, except for I think my campus minister, um, I found a Christian counselor, like walking distance from the school and without telling anyone, I just slipped away, you know, every Tuesday or Wednesday, I went to counseling and she was amazing. Um, she, she was my saving grace in so many ways. Um, but I found myself still feeling a bit of disappointment because um, she was a white woman and I had to explain a lot of things to her. I had to explain a lot about not just black culture, but African culture and the nuances and, and a lot of the things that I were experience, was experiencing was in the, you know, the nooks and crannies of the nuances of my culture um, and the cultures I'm in between. And um, I remember thinking, you know, when my time was up with her and I graduated, I remember thinking to myself, like, I wanna be a therapist that is there for someone like me. Um, and so, um, and she actually encouraged me and was like, you should consider going to school for therapy. And um, just through a bunch of crazy, like random people who like began to suggest like, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? I was like, I guess I'll apply. And I applied to Gordon Conwell, like, you know, doe-eyed and unknowing that this was gonna change the course of my life. And I got in and that's, that's where my story began in this field. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I want yeah. to touch on something that you said, which I think is often missed, and I'm so glad that you brought it up, is that you went to church and for two weeks you had excitement and hope. And then when the words of shame were put said to you, it became hopeless again. And that, that sense of I belong somewhere, so I matter disappeared. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It it felt like being thrown right back into a space where like something's wrong with me, you know. And and I knew that I wasn't making it up. And and what was interesting was I knew that God was not mad at me. I knew that I hadn't sinned. I, I knew that in my heart. I just couldn't prove it to people. I just couldn't prove that there's something going on that I can't explain. Um, and a lot of my my desire to be in this field, a lot of my, my research, a lot of my, my love for, for, you know, neurobiology and neuroplasticity and, and neuropsychology, all of those things are rooted in the reality of God's grace. 
that like there are things that I am experiencing outside of my control. God has grace for me when I experience them. And that is why I will at any moment spew out a scientific study because how many believers forget that God created the intricacies of our bodies. And so he understands the intricacies of the ailments we experience. And if he understands the intricacies of them, how much mercy do you think he is sharing towards you when you just can't get up that morning or when all you can do is get up that morning? What made you think to go see a counselor? Because it sounds like you kept it hidden. So there was some shame or worry that people would find out. So what made you think of that? Oh my God, this is, I don't, you know, it's not terrible to say it's the truth. I trusted God. I just didn't trust Christians. And, and rather I'll say I trusted God. I didn't trust the Christians in my community because I, and at the time, what's funny is I was a psych major. So as they're like telling me these things, I'm like, this, this seems a lot like depression. This seems a lot like, you know, there's a part of me that just like got to a point where I think, and when I say don't trust them, this isn't me saying they're, they weren't good people. I did not trust their expertise in this area, which is also why I'm really passionate about providing services to the church. Because I think sometimes the church has a boldness and a sense of authority in places that we're not knowledgeable about. And when we step into certain places with authority, but without knowledge, we wound people. And, and I'm, I'm evidence of that. So in your work with your counselor, did you discover that you had a diagnosis of depression or was this deemed circumstantial because of your experience growing up? Or can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So yes, it was a thousand percent depression. Um, I did not get on medication um, at that time and, and have been um, able to manage my depression on and off without medication, though, you know, if medication blesses you and helps you, absolutely take it. Um, but also what was really cool was just how absolutely healing it was to sit across from an unbiased party that was on my side. I didn't have to question that. You felt she was putting a label on you, but she, you felt that she was on your side. So what freedom was found in that? Yeah, so I, I don't think I felt she was putting a label on me. I think that it was just hard for her to understand. And I found myself a little exhausted, like, okay, well, let me explain to you how these things work in the Black church. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I think that having to break those down, things down for her was, was a little exhausting. But I mean, I'll, to this day, she's, she's changed my life. I think that um, what I found was that the things that I thought were odd and the things that made me feel lonely and sad and feel hopeless were things that should have made me feel lonely and sad and hopeless. You know, it, it was amazing how much dysfunction I was surrounded by in so many different areas of life that the world had kind of deemed as normal. And I didn't get the perspective of, oh, this is not healthy. And this is a reflection of brokenness and of trauma until I went to therapy. And she was like, yeah, Kabe, you're right. That's, that's not healthy. No, that, that's actually not okay. No, this is actually how these things happen. And so it gave me just a world of perspective. And I think that alone relieved so much of my, my depression feeling seen and heard. Yeah. 
It's powerful to hear that, that having someone reason and to try to find a cause uh, pushed you away. Where when someone leaned into the pain and leaned into the experience, validated and empathized with it without trying to explain it or define it or fix it, that brought you freedom. Absolutely. It made me, and I felt, I felt like, um, I did, there was no cost to, not a cost, how do I put it? I think I was in a place where, you know, you're in college and you're such a tight knit community. Like it's like its own world. And I could, I felt like I could trust what she said, even when she challenged me, because there was nothing for her to gain and nothing for her to lose. You know, there was no like personal attachment to how I responded. If I was angry, there, was, there wasn't a consequence for that. If I was sad, there weren't people saying, hurry up and cheer up, you're, you're killing the mood. You know, I, I just got to be. And I feel like that was probably one of the few times, probably the first time in my life, I felt like I got to be without consequence. I think everyone deserves that. So what drew you to Kirsten Counseling? I know you talked about people were speaking that into, but you that's a quite an investment to go to grad school for it. So how, where did you find that calling? <laughs> uh, really myself. <laughs> I would say the Lord. And then I was like, I want to be able to teach people how God shows up in their mental health struggles. Like that was very early for me. Like I didn't, I didn't want to just learn more about uh, mental health. I wanted, because you know, at that time I was relatively new believer. I was two or three years in, like going to um, seminary and you know, it's a hefty price, <laughs> but like going to seminary was, was a huge spiritual investment for me too. Like, I don't want to just give people Christian platitudes because I felt how empty those are. They sound so beautiful, but they're so empty to the soul. And I wanted to be able to have substantive uh, information and understanding for why I was saying whatever I was saying to comfort someone. So tell me about what you're doing now. How how has that, you know, you've you've graduated in your master's of Christian counseling and and in seminary. So where did that go? Where did that Yeah. Teach you? So right now I own a um, mental health practice uh, called the Healing Circle um, Therapy and Wellness Center here in Charlotte, North Carolina in South Charlotte. And I love it. It is it is my little baby. Um so I provide, I specialize in trauma therapy and really specialize in trauma therapy for Christians, though I service anyone who comes to me when I have availability on my schedule. And so I do the therapy side and I specialize in utilizing EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, and then also experiential work. I love the science behind how the emotional experiences we have are genetically encoded into our DNA. Um, through movement and can be decoded through movement. Um, so I do a lot of experiential work. And then um, the, the more wellness side is um, providing coaching for and co consultations for churches. So um, I have a trauma-informed um, leadership training that I do for church leadership. So I go into the leadership's uh, teams and I teach them not just through lecturing but through experience we do activities we get down on the ground and and we do the work ourselves we open up our own experiences our own trauma 
to each other um, as a reminder that as people lead, how, how taxing some of the things we ask of the people we're serving, right? To, to open up to somebody and share this and share this. But like, before we do that, we have to be willing to share. Um, and my leadership training helps uh, leadership teams show up in their congregations and with their staff and with their volunteers with an awareness that we are all carrying different traumas of different kinds um, and with an understanding of how to theologically relate to people in a way that aligns with who we know God to be. Um, I absolutely love doing that. And um, I'm just getting into doing um, individual coaching as well, which is really awesome for Christians who are outside of the US, who are in different places all over the world, providing them resources to understand their trauma and to have me walk alongside them as they process it to live the life that God has called them to live abundantly. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. I want to pause for a quick moment and dig a little bit deeper into something um, regarding trauma and the connection with our faith. There has been stigma that people have struggled with this intersection. Is it science? Is it faith? Is it spiritual? Is it demonic? Like all of cultural, like what, what is happening? There's a lot of balls in the air here and a lot of misunderstanding. Would you be able to um, provide some context uh, for people who are listening who are like, okay, I, I agree trauma exists. I agree that trauma is impactful. And I agree that most people have experienced trauma. But where does it show up in the word and how in the word of God and how and how do we help people through that in a way that is biblically based, maybe not focused on the science? Because some people have a hard time with that. So can you almost translate um the biblical principles that are seen within the science and, and the best practice. Oh my methods. gosh. Yes. Thank you. I love this question. So I think that scripture reflects because scripture tells us that all things belong to God, right? Scripture reflects whatever psychology is discovering, right? So the reality, and not all of psychology, but most psychological principles discovering, because the reality is um, we are, we are infinity years behind God when it comes to the discovery of these things, when it comes to this discovery of the human body and the cells and how the brain works, God already knew all these things. He, he knows the full extent to how all of them work and we're just catching up, right? Um, so I love to explain trauma to Christians through the lens of the life of David, which is so funny because nobody, everyone's like, David, the, the, the lyricist, David, the poet, David, the one who played instruments, the, the great leader, you know? Uh, all the things and nobody really thinks about the life of David as a warning um, and I think in my study I've found more and more clearly that, that his life is a warning um, so when I think about the life of King David I think about how um, when Saul comes to find David he is tending to sheep right so Jesse brings out all of his sons and uh David's apart from the sons. So contextually in the Jewish culture, that was common to leave a child apart from um, their siblings if they had a different mother or if they had a different parent, right? That's why when he says, bring all your sons, he doesn't bring David. So we don't have evidence 
hard evidence to say David had a different parent, but there's a lot of context that that alludes to that. Even if we say, okay, that's not true, Kobe, you don't have enough evidence for that. We do know that David's left out. We have evidence for that, right, in scripture. David's left out. So David is left out from his, um, his brothers, and we can assume that that's not the first time he's been left out. We can assume that's not the first time, and we see that in scripture, that's not the first time he's left out of the picture, right? So David has this childhood trauma of uh, abandonment and estrangement from people. So when David gets older, what does he struggle with? He struggles with intimacy. In childhood, the one thing that he lacked was intimacy. And so when he gets power and he gets authority, what's the one thing he can't say no to? Intimacy to the point of murdering somebody, right? And that is how, or that is like a small snippet. I didn't go on about this for years, but that is like a small snippet of how even in Christ, even in our fruitfulness, even in our ministry, even in our ability to slay, you know, the tens of thousands when other people are only slaying the thousands, our childhood trauma does not get resolved by time, does not get resolved by success, does not get resolved by the change of location. There was still a reality that David, in his heart, I believe that when he lets um, himself lead someone to their death, that was not a grown man doing that. That was a little kid saying, I'll never be lonely again, saying I'll never be left out again. So many of us are in those situations as believers. We have these childhood experiences which are foundational to our brain. Um, all activity that happens before the age of five kind of sets a foundation for our brain. Thank God for neuroplasticity, which means that we can set new pathways. Um, but we set new pathways, but we also have to deal with the old pathways that are there, right? Um, and for David, most of his life was being left out, being the underdog, you know, being the person who was least expected, least anticipated. And so when he gets his power and his authority, he can't even really walk in the fullness of the, the anointing that God's giving him, the fullness in the and the gift that God's giving him, because that little kid who was left alone, who is estranged from his siblings, estranged from his father, now grows up and does not know how to say no to intimacy. He goes from being so estranged to being hyper intimate, which is something that you'll see often um, with people and not just with any people, with people in the church. Right, because he doesn't only deal with hyper intimacy and saying no to intimacy, he deals with a specific type of intimacy. So when you think about the intimacy between a parent and a child, it's non-reciprocal. Meaning the child, the parent is obligated to love the child, but the child is not obligated to love the parent back, right? And if the, the, and if the child never loves the parent back, the parent's still responsible for loving the child. So what does he try to replicate in his relationship with women later? Non-reciprocal intimacy. These women can't say no to him. He's the king. If they say no, they die. That's so good. That could preach. Wow. I love that because oftentimes we 
once again, try to bring reason. And we look at that fall of David as being a sin or of a fall in the moment. And it's so important. It brings up that message again is it's not asking what's wrong with you. What sin are you committing? What is in your heart right now? It's asking what happened to you that it's that's so good. And that and I think that is why I used to ask God, you know, as a woman reading Psalms and reading, you know, uh, Old Testament, First Second Kings, I'd be like, God, what the heck? How could you say that he is a man after your own heart? And the more I began to study, the more it felt like the spirit was like, this is how. Because you're looking at a grown man and you're holding him responsible. And I'm seeing a little kid doing his best. Like, that's how I can say he's a man after my own heart. But that doesn't resolve his responsibility. And we can probably go on. There's still responsibility. There's still repentance. There's still, yeah, accountability. Absolutely. So the fact that there's trauma experience and you're recognizing that there's trauma doesn't negate accountability and responsibility. And I think that, you know, you can have both at the same time and they they can coexist. So that's important too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that God can have mercy for the things that lead us to sin and still hold us accountable for sin. As a church leader, listening to that and hearing that, how can we put to practice these lessons how can, of, of being trauma-informed or being aware of trauma in, in our leadership and in leading our care teams or our small groups or, or our staff or our volunteers? Yeah, I think that... I think our churches have to be better about embodying a part of Jesus that all of us are estranged from, which is his tenderness. Instead of saying, why did you do that? And we're going to set up a meeting and you need to get sat down saying what you just said, what happened? What led you there? Does that mean that someone's not going to face consequences? Absolutely not. But it's about encountering the person first because that's what, that's what God does. He encounters the person first, right? Like he heals, uh, you know, rather he shows mercy to the woman who um, is being dragged before him because she's accused of being adulterous and he forgives her. And then he says, go and sin no more, right? Like he, he still, there's still a responsibility there. But I think sometimes we try to heap this responsibility on people without, without honoring their humanity without honoring the fact that they're people, without honoring the fact that they're people with stories. Um, if we knew, I truly believe this, if we got to hear the, the depth of brokenness that the people we are serving with and the people we serve are carrying every single day, we would have so much more mercy. We would be so much more gentle. And trauma-informed leadership is about getting people to a place where you don't have to know their story before you decide to be gentle. That they don't have to prove with disclosing to you that you're safe, you know, that you are someone who is going to handle them with care. It's about teaching people how to handle people with care and also teaching people how to handle crisis well, right? Because I, I will never forget, I moved to Charlotte and I went to a women's conference the first weekend I got here. It was like day two of me being here. And I was like, just ready to jump into community. And I went to this women's conference and Gloria had given me this word for this woman. And I went to her and I like very reluctantly shared it. And I was like, the Lord says, and I don't even remember what it said, what I like 
what I said to her. It was very simple. And so I felt silly saying it because it wasn't even like, God's going to give you a, you know, it was just something really simple. I remember it being like, God, what? You want me to say that? And so I did. And she just broke down crying. But as she was weeping, I could tell by the pattern of her breath, by the pattern of um, just the way her body was moving, that she began to have a panic attack. And I'm praying with her and I begin to like, you know, do some grounding techniques, going through some panic attack um, protocols. And this woman who was a well, well-respected leader at the conference comes up, see, walks by and sees her and then comes up and kind of like gently budges me out of the way, but puts hands on her and essentially says, if you, if you believe that you're called and you believe that you are um, gonna be used by God, you need to not be so scared of the enemy. And all this is, is you being afraid. And she started casting the spirit of fear out of her. And the woman like was praying in tongues and casting the spirit of fear out of her. And then the woman walks away and the girl who's having this panic attack just crumbles. She just crumbled. And I stayed right there with her and I prayed with her. And I said, hey, I know she doesn't know what's going on with you, but what you just had was a panic attack. And she looked me in the eye and said, I felt like I was going to die. And then she came and prayed for me. And I felt ashamed that I felt like I was going to die. And that was the first time she ever had a panic attack. And I was, I was so enraged. I left. <laughs> I left the conference. I was like, I am not, Jesus, I love you. I'm not going to cuss anybody out. So I'm just going to leave, okay? I'm going to leave. And it like, I just went home and prayed and it was just so, and this is someone who was so respected in the area. And I was just like, this is what happens. This is how the enemy insidiously uses our religious tactics and our religious arrogance to lead us away from people, or rather lead us, help us lead people away from God by putting us in a position where we feel like we know all there is. Because when she came up and started casting the spirit of fear out of her, she was assuming that she understood everything. She didn't ask me questions. We have to remember that people are the experts of their experiences. Even if we're the expert of how to help them facilitate getting from point A to point B, we don't know how to get them from point A to point B until we know what they're experiencing and only they know that. And so, it was, it was a really sad and discouraging moment for me. And I just kind of had to come home and like pray and, and get myself together because I was just so incredibly upset um, that she had to experience that because, and I just prayed with her and just prayed that God would, would soothe her soul and would touch any um, seed of shame that the enemy placed in her heart and that he would remove it. And, you know, I, I, I was present with her to the best of my ability, but that that's what trauma-informed leadership training is about. It's about teaching you to know the difference because it's always both. When people say, so what is it? Is it spiritual or is it psychological? I'm like, it's both because psychological issues only exist because of the fall. It's both, it's always both. Did you trip because you have poor balance or did you trip because the devil made you? I don't know. I imagine in a perfect world, humans don't trip, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, and it, I, I just think that we, when we, we never say is it spiritual or not when someone breaks mm -hmm. their leg. Yeah. We never say is it spiritual or not. And can it absolutely be spiritual? Absolutely. But oftentimes I have found that 
almost all of my clients, the people that I mentor, the people I disciple, a lot of their spiritual issues are mental health issues that have been exacerbated. Mental health issues that have been untouched, unseen, have grown in the darkness and have expanded into spiritual issues. So what could this do? How could trauma-informed leadership transform the church? I think trauma-informed leadership could transform the church because it could uh, help people see how God responds to their mental health ailments and struggles and downfalls. Because Laura, it's not a fun thing to say, but the reality is the healing that people are longing for in their souls and their minds, it's not happening in the church. We are 10 steps behind. There are people coming into my therapy office who are experiencing what I would call healing and they call breakthroughs or they call deliverance. They're experiencing it in my office because they can't get it in the church. And is this not just a reflection of what happened in the time of Jesus? That the true healing that was happening when Jesus was alive and walking on this earth was not in the temple. It was outside the temple because the people in the temple were too arrogant to submit and learn. And trauma-informed leadership is an opportunity for them to learn how to open the house of God and how to allow more than just the gifts of singing and preaching um, into the house of God so that people can come and be healed, find refuge. People often think that trauma can only be treated in a therapist's office. But that's not true. Trauma can be, freedom can be found in belonging and hope with that's found in the church. But so often the church either feels inadequate or ill-equipped or are uninformed, misinformed. Don't know what the right word is. <laughs> yeah and we don't even know what to do with people's trauma like we don't and I think part of the trauma-informed um, leadership training is about teaching people what is trauma there are people who are going to involuntarily respond to things that, and not have any control over it and not know why they did respond that way what are you are you going to chastise them for being triggered or do you even know what a trigger is you know, do you even know how trauma can affect someone's brain? Do you know how it affects someone's body? Do you know how it affects their soul? And if we don't know those things, how can we help in the process of redeeming it and healing? So how can people access your resources? If this is like, whoa, this can be transformative for my community. My people need to hear this. Where can they find out more information? Absolutely. They can reach me and learn more about my resources at www.cobecampbell.com. That's www.k-o-b-e-c-a-m-p-b-e-l-l.com. And yeah, I have, um, I think I have a tab called resources where you can book me for trainings, for speakings, for keynotes, for anything about like um, or even to say, hey, I want a specialized retreat. I've had a couple people reach out and say, I want a retreat, but only for these specific people that I'm bringing. I have um, a twice yearly retreat called Oasis. It's a mental health intensive for Christian women where they get to get away. And it's amazing. It, it really feels like this weird moment where heaven comes to earth and nothing else in the world matters. So it's my favorite thing to do ever. 
Um, so yeah, you can reach me there at my website. Um, on social media, you can reach me at at Kobe Campbell underscore. Yeah. And definitely connect, like follow you on Instagram because I do. And there's a lot of really good like tips and, you know, life-changing moments in your reels and in your stories and in your posts. So definitely follow you on Instagram. Kobe, just one last question. Um, If you could send yourself an email or a voicemail um, back in time, if you can kind of just put that plug in, um, knowing, knowing what you know now, what would you tell your former self? I would tell myself, it doesn't feel like it now, but it's all going to be redeemed and you're going to experience joy. That's what I would say. Hey, thanks for listening. I encourage you to put what you've heard into action. How are you going to be intentional about building a culture of care, both for yourself and for others in your church? If you've enjoyed listening, write a review. And if you want to be reminded when a new episode goes live, make sure you follow. I also want to mention for the month of December, we're going to be taking a much needed Christmas break, but don't worry. There still will be new episodes each week. For December, we are jumping back to share some of the most viewed sessions from the 2020 Church Mental Health Summit. I can't wait to share some of these fantastic talks and resources with you. Thanks for connecting. Take care.